If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. With Indeed, everything hiring is all in one place and it makes it so easy. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences each day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. The more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash podcast. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey folks, welcome to the Unsung Podcast. I am your host, Mark Fraser, and I'm joined by these two lovely gentlemen. Oh, is he back to being the host now? <laughs> this guy, he's up and doing like a yo-yo. He's up and doing that yeah. yo-yo, yeah. I think it depends who else is, is on the pod that week, because sometimes he wants to seem like he's Mr. Cool, Mr. Down to Earth. I don't believe in hierarchies. <laughs> now, now that Anna's not here. Uh, he's, he's stamping stamping the jackboot of authority back down on us. Yeah. If Vicky had made it, then perhaps we'd have had a, a slightly more diplomatic mark. Possibly. We'll never know. Mm-hmm. We will never know because uh, uh, sometime host Vicky, Vicky Henry, is having a day from hell, a technical snafu, uh, and she won't be joining us in person this week, but she will be passing comment via the medium of voice note, which we'll cut in during the show, uh, as I know she has numerous brightly coloured opinions on what we're going to cover this week. But before we get to that, Mark, your background looks like vomit. Uh, that's why I picked it. You, yeah, your video background kind of looks like either maybe a mid-90s kids pop show or it could be a graphic of a bacteria. Um, but yeah, it yeah. looks like you're in some sort of Wigfield nightmare. Wigfield, is that foreshadowing, Dave? Well, no, 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 we're not allowed to talk about Wigfield. Um if you want me to have a better background and maybe even see what that background is, then you can give us money. Uh, <laughs> see? F- professional. Very professional. Uh, if you would like to donate to our, our humble little operation, you can do so via two mediums. You can go to unsungpod.com forward slash donate where you can drop us a little monetary donation of your choosing via the medium of PayPal. Um, which you can do there, or you can join Patreon if you like a longer-term subscription where we give you cool stuff, like playlists and T-shirts, and oh my God, if we get a T-shirt for you, it's a beautiful... <laughs> it is quite a T-shirt. And you also yeah. get the podcasts a couple of days early as well. And that, vitally that, yes. Mark, I'd, I'd, far be it for me to get into semantics, but when you said two mediums, should that be media? 
Possibly, yeah. Because I imagine two old ladies talking to the dead. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sometimes it feels like it with the amount of subscribers we have. <laughs> yeah. Aye, it's definitely haunted, that uh, Patreon. Um, okay, this is a Dave week, and what a Dave week it is. Uh, do you want to introduce us to your selection? Aye, so ESG. ESG are a band from South Bronx. ESG stands for Emerald, Sapphire and Gold. And they are, well, they've been called No Wave because they were lumped in with No Wave. They've been called Minimalist Funk, Post-Punk, New Wave, just about every genre. And yeah, I just thought, I mean, they're a very interesting band to talk about. I mean, first up, I guess they are a band of black women, all sisters, born into poverty, uh, they play quite a unique style of all those genres, no wave, new wave, post-punk, punk, funk, very minimalist. They're noted as one of the most sampled bands in history, uh, particularly their track UFO. Um, but just throughout their history they've been sampled by hip-hop, dance, electronic I mean everybody from Nine Inch Nails, Public Enemy, Beastie Boys Miles Davis, uh, MF Doom, TLC even like indie bands like Liars and stuff like that. Yeah, a lot of people with a lot more money than ESG. Well, indeed. Yeah, um, yeah. So to go with that, they have, they've obviously... Right, hang on, hang on, hang on. Sorry. We're doing the album Come Away with ESG. Before yes. we get too, ex- too excited. We are doing the album Come, a- <laughs> Come Away with ESG. Um, so yeah, I guess they also have a real issue with sampling because so many bands have made music and money off the back of their stuff. And I kind of get the feeling that ESG have never really made any money at all. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it informs the tone of a lot of their later works. I mean, quite obviously so in some cases, but also just this sort of vague atmosphere of slight resentment mm -hmm. that that, that seems to kind of permeate their their sort of post-Reformation stuff. I mean, we'll we'll go through some of their catalogue, but, you know, from what started out as like a family group effectively plus uh, you know uh, the Scroggin sisters Rennie, Valerie, Deborah and Marie and plus the services of uh, Tito Libran um, what started out as quite a sort of naive project to sort of keep them off the streets their mum didn't want them falling into the same sort of like bad habits as their older siblings which included like drug addiction and things uh, so she got them instruments and challenged them to become the bands that they watched on talent shows on television and they were adamant that they could. And I think that's that, that's obviously that 
it's not the kind of thing you expect to necessarily get anywhere. You know, it's just the kind of thing a, a good parent does in difficult circumstances to try and keep their children on the straight and narrow. But it's fascinating that they ended up being so influential. But it's also really fascinating that they ended up propping up the careers of people that made exponentially more money. Uh, and it definitely, it, it definitely looms large over the band right mm. up until today. And and it, it's a big part of any interview. It's a big part, just generally, tonally. And also, ironically mm. enough, the chasing of payment for samples caused the band to basically split up and their label to implode. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of like tied into their history. Uh, mm. I, well, I believe they had a legal battle with one of their own sisters as well. Eh? Is it Deborah? Yeah. She, she's not involved in it anymore. Because, I mean, until very recently, they were still playing... Um, at least one of Renee's daughters, maybe two, or niece. Uh, I think a nephew as well. Yeah, they were now involved in this new iteration of the band because uh, the original members are obviously getting on a bit. Um, but one of the sisters is no, you know, she's been disinvited, shall we say, because of legal action. I mean, it's it's kind of a messy story, mm-hmm. and and having come from that totally unassuming, uncontrived origin of just yeah, you know, let, let's get the girls what we can afford to get them so that they hopefully stay out of trouble. I think that's. It's quite a fascinating trajectory. Um, I guess just beyond being sampled and that whole issue as well, though, they have been very influential for a lot of dance bands. They were a huge part of like the New York 80s LGBT house and disco scene. They were part of Factory Records and the Hacienda. And they've just got this sort of reputation for her joyful, really life-affirming, visceral, dancey live shows. Um, Can I just face up and say that it was quite a humbling choice for me because I didn't know anything about ESG and I've got a lot of time for a lot of the bands around this scene and I've got a lot of time for a lot of the bands that we'll probably get a mention later on that have clearly taken inspiration from them. Um, so I had to eat humble pie, really, when I was researching them and be like, this was a real blind spot. They're, they're, they're fascinating. I have to hand it to you. I think definitely in the top three bands that fit the remit of this podcast uh, that we've ever discussed. I think it's a superb choice in that sense. Mm -hmm. Um, Because, wow, I mean, broke, racked with like infighting and because they never get any of the the, the compensation they were due while other people made a mint off them. They are the the, the definition of unsung, really, uh, as a group. And we'll talk about the album and how it qualifies as well, which, you know, cars on the table, it, it certainly does. But uh, yeah, this was this was a real eye-opener for me. I mean, sometimes someone highlights something that you're like, how the fuck did I miss this? And yeah, this, mm. is, this is an impressive selection, David. Mark, you've always been into them, though. You've got ESG tattoos and stuff, of course, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm much the same as Chris, total blind spot for me. Uh, fan of a lot of the bands that have sampled them, clearly. Um, a lot of the artists that have sampled them, many of whom have been on our podcast, as you've as you just highlighted there, Dave. Mm-hmm. Um, I always find it really strange going back in here and like the original songs. You know, yeah, you've sampled before. It's always a really strange experience. I totally. Um, but it's been eye opening too. Yeah, for sure. And definitely on song, I would agree with Chris on that. And, and um, as we talk about discography, I guess we can talk about all. We'll talk about other other records as well. But that's one for sure, man. Should be in a conversation about most influential albums ever ever released that are completely unknown yeah Yeah. can we can we just set the scene for people such as us then mark that are unfamiliar it sonically they quite often use just bass and drums Mm -hmm. and and voice that's that's a pretty remarkable 
part of the, the formula. As again, it's it's uncontrived. The, the like four really young women. They were between sixteen and nineteen when the band started, and there's no sort of sense of planning or manipulation at any stage, really. I mean, they have some of the absolute worst artwork I've ever seen <laughs> by any band. Yeah, I was going to talk about that. Like, in actual fact, it's funny. She really got she got pissy about record store day artwork from a few years ago because she was like, "Oh, they've kind of bastardized what we did." But then mm-hmm. their last two albums have literally the worst Microsoft no. Paint album artwork I've ever seen in my life. It's just, it's just, it's just, it is, honestly, how many times does it lap itself in irony in the sense that it's so bad it's good that it's so bad that it's so good that it's so bad. I mean, it's yeah. just so fucking bad, the mm-hmm. artwork. that It really sort of suggests that there is nobody steering the ship in the term, in the sense of a... Uh, ruthless Svengali with a ponytail. You know, no, I th- I think they've had a couple of like occasional managers, but they've just been like you know friends or friends of the family and things yeah, like that. Exactly. Yeah, it's 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 just there's something so naive about the entire project, which is why it also comes across as still being quite special, quite unspoiled. You know, mm-hmm. when you see that, honestly. Listeners, you will not believe how bad the artwork is. You will not believe it. The fact that they had the audacity, as Dave says, to criticise one of the covers that was done for them because they thought it looked like vomit when you see their <laughs> last two records is just, I mean... Well, I've never seen that shade of, like, yellowy-brown outside <laughs> of a skittery dog poo. <laughs> and they've used it on both albums. <laughs> Microsoft Paint, you're not even joking. Yeah, no, like, yeah, totally is. Yeah. yeah. If if they had actually used a photograph of vomit, it would have been probably a slightly better cover. Yeah. I mean, and that is not to in any way reflect on the m- the music they're in, but it is just mental. I mean, it just that's <laughs> fascinating. Though that that really lends itself to 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 the appreciation of the band, though, because this is a totally unvarnished, unsteered, non deliberate thing that just happened to to strike a chord with a lot of people. Actually, with a lot of people. Yeah, and I feel like they're sort of they're just untouched by movements or trends. Um, they just so happen to form at a time. Um, so yeah, they, in nineteen seventy eight in South Bronx, and well, they were going to apply on sort of um, talent shows and stuff like that. Um, and they met Ed Balman, who ran uh, the Greenwich Village Record Store ninety nine Records. Met yeah. him at a talent contest and signed to his label. Um, and just so happened that they were part of a movement with sort of post-punk and no-wave bands like Liquid Liquid mm-hmm. um, and and, st- and stuff like that. And then a couple of years later, they were playing uh, in Manhattan and Tony Wilson from Factory Records was there and uh, basically signed them up, took them over to Manchester, recorded a couple of, e- a couple of songs, a couple of EPs. Um, and I mean, they were like, into the studio, recorded in a first take. They weren't messing about. They weren't, you know, overdubbing. And I guess simplicity and primal musicality is a big part of what this band are about. What makes me like them is I think they are the exact opposite of Dream Theater. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, can you be better than be the opposite of Dream Theater? I'm not sure you can. You can see why they get lumped in with post-punk and stuff like that. They've got the same... The same rudimentary sort of naivety about them, right? 
that a lot of punk bands had in the 70s. Mm-hmm. But I think this is a bit more calculated than that, and so it's particularly the drumming, um, which isn't amazing, but certainly... It's it's like Meg White, right? You know, it serves the song, you know that kind of thing. And we'll talk about that as we go through as we go through the album, I suppose. But yeah, there's like the simplicity of it is the thing that I find the most attractive about it as well, mm-hmm. and partic- particularly this album. Yeah, the arrangements are very, very underproduced. Mm-hmm. There are the occasional glimpses of synth and um, and guitar. Yeah, Renee does play guitar for the band, albeit. You know, very sporadically. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's 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 useful to set the scene a wee bit, though, and I think this is something that makes them so special. As Dave said, they started uh, in earnest in in 1978, at least as a band. Obviously, they'd been playing a wee bit before that, but uh, the scene at that time, you know, you're you're talking about the early days of post punk. You know, the, the latter days of punk bands that you can kind of hear certain comparisons. With relevant comparisons with include Gang of Four. Wire. The slits, especially when you get to like the slits doing like their cover of uh, Heard It Through the Grapevine, for example, that's, that's that same clattery empty, hollow, post-punky, unfussy approach to something that's got quite a lot of soul in it. In fact, David, you mentioned Liquid Liquid, the band that are on their uh, mm-hmm. label. Liquid Liquid had a similar, not to the same extent, but a similar story with sampling. I mean, one of their tunes, Cavern, is really, really heavily sampled. One of the most obvious places you would hear it is the song Something Like a Phenomenon. But it's all over the place. The, the mm-hmm. baseline from that track, uh, and and actually bands from that era, especially the lesser known bands, are just prime for that kind of sampling. Especially before a lot of musical legislation, you know, legal stuff came in, copyright stuff came in, because the whole notion of sampling wasn't really people weren't guarding against it because it hadn't really happened yet mm-hmm. until just shortly after. Um, now, musically, they've also taken. Unwittingly or not, I would say probably unwittingly, a lot of influences from things that went before. I mean, they said their main vision for the sound of the band was to be like a James Brown bridge. You know, when James Brown says, take it to the bridge, and they strip out the brass for example, in his songs, and it goes down to just, like, generally speaking, the bass and the drums and a real groove, they were like, why can we not make a whole song of that? Because that's quite often the best bit of the song, so why don't we just do a whole song of James Brown Bridges? And that's, that's kind of a cool concept, and they, they arguably have done that really well, certainly yeah. at times. But it's also, like, delivered in a very sort of indie way. That's the thing that I think 
the the race notwithstanding, I think Renee's spoken about this. Like she gets a little bit tired about them getting like lumped in with like being progenitors of hip hop and always getting quizzed in interviews about hip hop. She doesn't particularly like hip hop. She's like the only time I pay attention to hip hop is when it's sampling our stuff. Mm-hmm. And she's like, and one thing about hip hop that really alienated her was when she heard their songs, their samples, these four young African American women from the South Bronx getting rolled up into songs that were hugely misogynistic by a lot of the people that we mentioned earlier on. She was like, I listened to her beats, her bass lines, backing tracks where they're singing about bitches and hoes, and I don't care about being patronised about, you know, the cultural relative meaning of those words. She's like, I'm a black woman. I don't want to hear bitches and hoes over our music. We were young women when we were making that, and it's totally inappropriate. And so her take on that is really, really interesting. And musically, they're much more aligned with a lot of that New York post-punk scene, where some of the influences in their music seem to originate is actually in disco. Um, there's a you hear a lot of like, especially in the vocal approach, mm. they, they seem to have pioneered this thing of like hitting on very simple, quite sort of like facile vocal loops, you know, thing, you know, really simple phrases that don't have a lot of like metaphorical depth, but the whole point is that they're just little celebration phrases to hook you and draw you into the song and give you something to repeat and almost form part of the instrumentation. That comes from like, you know, people like Donna Summer, people like Cool and the Gang. You want to get down? You know, daft hooks that really drew people into those songs, but it also set the scene for like 1990s dance music. Where people were, were clipping those little kind of like vocal loops into songs and you know we all make jokes of it you know I feel alive you know or take me away it feels so good to be in love with you all these kind of things like silly vocal loops that became a trope in dance music had to start somewhere and actually this band had a a huge part to play in that Mm -hmm. they took disco sounds they indified them they made them a little bit cooler and then their indie versions of them were sampled into hip hop which was then sampled into dance music and you're you're sort of seeing this cut and paste, cut and paste, cut and paste collage effect across multiple generations and it's really, really fascinating and then there is a more direct lineage of their sound when you listen to some of the more that that kind of second wave of New York indie music that came out of like The Rapture uh, CSS Uh, yeah, yeah, yeahs, uh, the strokes, even, mm-hmm. you know, and there's even moments where you hear like little bits of Interpol. I mean, there's like genuinely bits of guitar in this that sound like the pre turn on the bright lights Interpol. And and it, it's fascinating that they've they've had such a hand and influence in so many disparate genres, some of which they have absolutely no time for or very little time for. Um, they are a really, really important band. They're a really pivotal band. And yeah, it's such a small fulcrum. That's that the world is turning on the musical world. World is turning on here. I think it's a, it's really astonishing. So, like they released their their debut album, which is the one that we're talking about in uh, nineteen eighty two. 
they had a couple of EPs out before that. Mm-hmm. In fact, I believe that Vicky's sent us through some of her thoughts uh, up to and including that first EP, so it's maybe a good time to refer to her. Aye, let's go for perspective it. on it. Hiya, Chris, Dave and Mark. Sorry I can't be there in real time. I, as you know, had a bit of a mare. Anyway, thanks for asking me to talk about ESG. I had never heard of this band until literally last week. Um, I feel a wee bit guilty about that. I feel like I should have known about them because they've they've been so kind of um, prominent and so influential on a lot of people. And I'll maybe speak about that a bit later when I talk about their album. Chris, you referenced Gang of Four when you asked me to speak about them and I kind of thought, I wonder why he's asking me to talk about a band that sounds like Gang of Four because that's not really me and, I, and, and you should bloody know that. But it's very difficult to, to define this band, isn't it? To kind of, to put them in a genre. And I think that's something that's been said about them and something that they have acknowledged themselves, which I'm sure you've you've touched on. So they've said that their music is, is music you can dance to, not dance music, but music you can dance to. And um, I like that about it. It is, it's, I think it's more of an energy than a genre. It's not, their, their music isn't that fully formed, um, and there's things to like and dislike about that and there are things that I like and dislike about that I, I think I have to be honest and say I, I liked the EP that UFO was on it was the was it Moody EP it was the one that the guy from Factory Records did and they did it they did the first two tracks in one take and the first track is You're No Good and I think that that's better than anything that's on the album that's been picked here You love ya Personally, I, I just feel like it moved me a bit more. It really reminded me of, um, there's a garage band from the 60s called The Monks that did a song called I Hate You, and albeit it's, that song's a bit more aggressive and pained, um, it has that kind of plodding forward energy to it, and that, that's what that song has for me, and I really, really, really dug that. I'm sure that you mentioned they're one of the most sampled bands ever and probably mentioned UFO and I think that yeah, because their songs as I say they're not really contextualised they're not like hugely structured they are like snippets of things a feeling or an energy and again, like I said, there's things to like and dislike about that and maybe I'll get into that a bit more when we talk about the album but they did grow on me over the week Um, I definitely feel I've got time for them put it that way I totally agree with Vicky on most of her points there and like Mm. the one that stands out for me is that they are definitely very much an energy band rather than a fully formed you know, genre or what have you and definitely the Dance to the Beat of the Moody EP. So that was 82, and then the album that we're talking about came out in 83. Um, that EP, uh, just throughout their career, the production is very important, and they definitely have succumbed to a mix of over and under production in later records, and it's finding that sweet spot of just getting that live energy. Keeping it simple is what 
really worked on that EP, you know, they just went in, recorded it live in the first take, and that's mm-hmm. that's what the band are about. I guess that's pretty much what their all of their early stuff is about, Chris. I, I mean, I can't really disagree with any of it. I just want to sort of like put an asterisk next to something that Vicky said in her message, and I'll give a wee bit of preamble to that. That they are all about mood. They're all about roughness. They're they're a very unrefined, unsteered band. I've I've sort of like made that really clear to this point. However. Context, I think, does matter in a slightly more meta scale. They're not trying to fit into any genre. They're not trying to fit into any scene. They're just doing what they do, and what's come out is pure for that reason. But I think it works in the context of their naivety. And it, the the EP, in fact, the first two EPs and the album that we're discussing are all excellent because they are so uh, uncontrived and honest. And coming from a very, very sincere place, and a lo- there's a lot of love in them, uh, and I think that's as much the energy that we're talking about as anything. Whereas, where context kicks in is later in their career, it, it doesn't work because by that point, not only has the entire music scene moved on, but they're they're older, you know, and they've not grown necessarily as musicians as much as they should have at certain stages in their career. If they were going to be musicians So as young, naive, creative persons That early stuff is fantastic And it's ahead of its time in a lot of ways mm-hmm. Okay, it's concurrent with like, the likes of Gang of Four And stuff like that But it's doing something different at the same time And it's it's adding to that tapestry of post-punk And, the, and all the things that post-punk led to You know, bands like Death Grips Ultimately, in their own way Came from this, that weird take You know, combining all kinds of like Afro-American influences with weird alternative influences as well. But the context matters in those later recordings because the later recordings are just quite poor and they're sort of kitschy and they're relying on the kitschiness a bit too much and I think it becomes a little bit too nudge-nudge, wink-wink at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's where I kind of fall off the, 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 the wagon with them a wee bit. I'd like, to, I'd like to understand more about why they decided to get back together. You know, they broke up in 85 um, and that was it, you know, and then didn't release another album to 2002 I mean in terms of their history they they got good reviews and places like Village Voice even the New York Times were you know placing them up in their lists and best of the years in terms of their EPs and stuff like that but yeah it kind of all fell apart mid 80s mm-hmm. um, and they came, was it 91 they came back yeah, yeah. that uh, ESG album which was like really just a collection yeah, so I think what happened was Deborah left the band due to drug problems and then what ironically happened was the record label, 99 Records, went bust trying to sue Sugar Hill uh, Records um, for using a sample by another band on their label. But then Sugar Hill went bankrupt and 99 re- Records were then left with all the court costs the legal um, bills, yeah. And then that fucked that label as well. So then they kind of go dark a little bit. Apparently they kept performing, uh, but on such a low-key basis, you know, locally, that, yeah, in the UK, they might as well have split up. Who knows? Mm-hmm. You know, and, yeah. you know, th- that's kind of part of them is, like, they were at such a low level that, you know, were they a band, were they not? Who actually knows? Maybe that, you mm-hmm. know, <laughs> which is really interesting. Yeah, I think um, when they when they came back with the ESG collection, 
named ESG. There's an ESG EP as well from yeah. one, uh, but the ESG album that that kind of pulling together various unreleased things and unheard things, and some of the musicians that are taking part are a little bit more professional. Yeah. Not meaning that in any disrespectful way, but you know, maybe session players, pl- players with other bands. So you can hear on, like, for example, the track "Hold Me Right," which is a pretty decent song. Um, there's like a really kick-ass drum fill in that song that they could never have done with the previous lineup. Uh, there's a lot more 90s soul and stuff in it there's there's just little bits of like ambition poking through and that was a year before they then brought out what's become quite a notorious record in their, their history sample credits won't pay our bills Which is probably the most overt example of them demonstrating that 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 resentment that that I was talking about earlier. Yeah, they've seen the boom in hip hop music, you know, in the late eighties. Uh, while they have, you know, literally just using their music while they haven't been a band or you know they've struggled to you know exist. So yeah, you can absolutely see why they're angry. And then. It was in 2002 that Soul Jazz then uh, released a, a compilation, which was really well received, actually. No, 2000. 2000, because, yeah. yeah, I think it got updated. Um, and then... Uh, Can we just say, by the way, we, we did skip over. In 95, they brought out an ESG live record. And the thing is, so much of their stuff is live that it's a perfectly valid release in, in, in their canon. Yeah. Although what you will find is there's got to be about 10 ESG records out there that have got tracks like Moody on it because mm-hmm. they, they, they don't have a huge library of stuff and there mm-hmm. are some that are more prominent than others and they tend to reappear. Um, and it is worth saying that from that sample credits won't pair bills EP some of them appeared on this South Bronx story too. Uh, there was a time Earn It and Like This, you can hear them on that There are two tracks, uh, Time Only Makes It Better and False Teeth, that I could not find anywhere. Mm-hmm. Other than, like, I don't think they were ever re-released. I couldn't find them on YouTube. I couldn't find them online. Um, I imagine people that have the original might have uploaded them to torrent sites. If you're a super fan and you can get them, you're really, if your interest is peaked, then it's maybe worth it. But I couldn't find those two tracks anywhere. The rest have tended to reappear in the collections, though, at various stages. Um, and then I guess kind of after that we move into the most recent most chapter of their career and they've released four yeah. albums in the last 20 yeah. years at the same time where maybe some of the music press have been more aware of their influence uh, bands who have been influenced by them have started to you know say their name in uh, interviews and stuff like that so they were starting the, the, to get a little bit of credit and notice um, yeah, but they're a wee bit. They're a cool name to drop as well, and I, I think they're aware of that. They're like they they get. You they get, became currency. Yeah, um, exactly. Um, the the two thousand and two. I think the one we were talking about was Step Off. Yeah, Step Off. It's sl- slowed it down. They've added guitar. They've 
done some R&B, even some post-soul stuff. If you're good to me, I even noticed there's a couple of songs that sound kind of like Faith No More at their more like, <laughs> uh, you know, ironic. Her vocals are way more at the front and aggressive, but this is exactly what you're talking about. Like, they're trying, uh, but doing something yeah, weird. It's a, it's a little bit anachronistic, yeah. I think, this record. And I, I will say the, the track Six Pack on it, the fourth track, is like the most upbeat, it's a kind of indie disco tune. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And I think it's the better of this collection. Mm-hmm. So it starts pretty slow. Like the first three tunes are pretty downbeat and pretty somber. And mm-hmm. I think there's something a little bit, I don't want to say underwhelming, but if, if you were waiting and waiting and waiting to hear what they put out, and the first three tunes are a little bit like, a little bit dark and, and pessimistic in that kind of like the pacing and the tone. But Six Pack lifts it all. But I do think it just at this point, the naivety of the recordings and the naivety of the performance given the fact they are no longer 16-year-old young women from a totally unplanned trajectory of mm-hmm. music, that yet it doesn't really work. It doesn't, ha- it doesn't have that same magic spell yeah. as that early stuff. And they're kind of, they're instead of swaying the music around them, they are being swayed by all of the mm-hmm. music that has happened. And, then that- and by expectations as well, yeah. by people talking about them as being this great lo-fi basic indie thing and then yeah. they're just kind of pandering to that a wee bit maybe and then on 2006 they uh, keep on moving purely physical baby physical whisper in my ear baby hold me near let me show you where you can I mean mm-hmm. they've added some big electronic drums here some big time yeah hip hop mm-hmm. beats even some dare I say it some sexy stuff um, yeah. And for yeah. me, I mean, it just it doesn't work at all because it loses no. all of the live band energy that they had. It's, yeah, it's both too clean and also not tight enough because their musicianship yeah. isn't good enough to pull it off to that you yeah. know that production sc- scrutiny. It's an it's an odd no man's land, isn't it? Because it's like like the first track, purely physical, has this weird emptiness. It has got a hip hop feel, but it's like it's sort so, of rings hollow or something like that. Um, and like the the, the lo fi production and things like keep on moving, it sounds a bit deliberate. Yeah, you're right. I, I think it just sounds like it doesn't really know where it wants to go. I personally, I'm projecting maybe, but I personally get the impression that they were debating whether or not they should try and modernise the sound. Mm-hmm. But then they were also saying, but we've got to give the audience what they want. And they feel like they're caught between things here. Whereas I do think they start to shift after this, but this seems a bit indecisive. I mean, I guess on here and maybe on Closure as well, which came out in 2013, they're probably recording this with, you know, on no budget. To me, that really comes to the fore in Closure. Oh. 
which mm-hmm. to me I think is the nadir of their discography. Um, <laughs> I don't. I just don't I mean, think you get a pass for any of it. I think the production. I mean, the drums sound so bad. The bass sounds mm-hmm. shite. The you vocals know, are horrendous. <laughs> there, I mean, there's really basic sort of moments in this that you're thinking. Even just the playback should have told you this wasn't passable. Like the pain, the second track, the one where like it's like a kind of R and B soul vibe. But it, yeah, it just sounds like a really bad high school project. Oh my god, it's I mean it's really poorly recorded and um the I mean I think Thump's okay. I don't think it's the worst thing they did, but it it yeah, I mean it, it doesn't hold together at all. The artwork on this record is fucking mind blowing. <laughs> How I mean it's just it's like a as you said, like a a, a paint like a, a Microsoft Paint. It's almost certainly MS Paint, right? It has to be. A, a, do- a door slightly ajar. I mean, it's really just a series of polygons with like <laughs> weird colour choices and then a the word- terrible fonts as well. Oh my god! Mm. It's just as you say, it's a, it's, an, it's a fucking odd album. And then they they pad it out at the end with a bunch of remixes as they have been doing. Yeah. Um. Then 2017. What more can you take? I actually think the artwork is worse. It is worse, yeah, somehow, somehow, somehow um, worse. <laughs> yeah. A person looking at a dead rat drawn in MS Paint, and it sounds like I'm being a fucking prick there. But no, I'm- but that literally is it. <laughs> um, but do you know what? I actually think the record is so much better than Closure or Keep On Moving. <laughs> I, I have to admit, some of this album is fucking great. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, it is there's, so... It, it's, I was just so not expecting it. There's definitely some <laughs> shit bits on it, right? There's oh, definitely yeah, some sure. bits that they're like totally missing the mark. Dude, the track ESG thing is going to my next DJ set. That's it's, a banger. Yeah, it's totally aggressive dance rock, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's absolutely fucking brilliant. I think watching is really cool. I think end of it is like fucking glitchy ambient post rock. Uh, you might be the one. Is like punchy R and B. I really, really like My Bug. I think that's like cool industrial math rock. Can you be it? I'm not saying wonky, I'm changing it to glonky. I think it's glonky. Um, now, can I just say, going back to what the comment I made earlier on when we were before we we're talking about closure, in fact, we we're talking about keep on moving. Um, this is where I think they did finally say, "Look, we need to do something new. We can't just keep mm-hmm. recycling this stuff." They've got a younger generation, their their own children working with them. They've got some new ideas in the mix, and I think they've taken that on board. And they've actually produced something that, whilst yeah, you're right, it's very inconsistent. It totally, unironically, has some genuinely 
excellent moments in it. Mm-hmm. Like excellent moments of almost like weird industrial indie rock that would fit into any kind of edgy set. It's it's a weird anomaly. Yeah. Uh, and I did not see it coming, especially with the fucking cover. Yeah, I mean I'd probably <laughs> say that it's their unsung record within their within their discography. But yeah, yeah. I think I'm choosing the album we choose we're choosing because mm. I mean it's unsung overall. I mean, they also said they were never going to record anything else. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They were like, we, we recognise our ages, we recognise life has changed, we're not going to do any more stuff, that's it. And it's actually a really nice bookend, because it does have some fucking brilliant moments on it. Mm-hmm. As somebody that, inverted commas, DJs from time to time, I was amazed, and I'm always on the lookout for something that you can drop in that's a wee bit different, that'll get people coming up and being like, what's this? And that album's got at least three or four on it. It's 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 cool. It's really definitely worth your time. I think it's probably time actually to start talking about the album. Their, their career has been fascinating so far, right? I mean, that, you're right, that last album was like, wow. <laughs> it came completely out of the fucking blue. Well, let's wind it all the way back to the very start, right? So come away with the SG. Mm-hmm. Shall so, we see what Vicky has to say about this? Give her first shout. I think that's a good idea. So, as I said before, I've got quite mixed feelings about this album. What I liked about it is... It's full of like teenage girl patter. It's not bratty because it's not like Latigra or something like that. Even though I did read that Kathleen Hanna said she drew a lot of inspiration from ESG when she was putting together Latigra, um, and she certainly wasn't the only one. But I like this kind of teenageriness. The lyrics to Moody are like, "I'm going to see my baby, and that makes me feel moody." And I don't really, I can't quite put my finger on what it is about that, but it's very teenager and I like that because we don't often get to see like female teenagers in this kind of milieu of punk or no wave or whatever, whatever this is, right? Um, Something else that I liked about it was I think that you do kind of that cityscape of New York and the Bronx kind of comes through there are really atmospheric um, parts to it. Obviously, the percussion throughout is one of like the best things about it. Um, it's so dancey and fun, and it feels more... Obviously, it's not mainstream, right? So it's not trying to fit any particular mould. It sounds more like pals jamming. Someone's come up with a... A, a dark kind of bass line, somebody puts some drums over it, somebody else kind of sings some noises and shouts and things like that. And I think that from that point of view, from just its ability to just be its own thing out with the mainstream, I like, I, for that reason, I do think it should go in the, the discography. Like, I really like it for that. And my standout track on it is Chistel could be Chistel, could be Chistelli, could be Kistel. I've no idea what pronunciation to apply here. Let's just say Chistel. I really like that song. I would be surprised if that wasn't one of Chrissy's favourite songs because it starts out like an Interpol song and then it becomes a kind of like Fugazi number and I think Fugazi's another band that I can hear have taken some of the kind of inspiration of the, the danciness from this. So 
that's what I, I like about this. Um, I, and a lot of it's more to do with its kind of energy and ambience or atmosphere or whatever. Um, in terms of like the music, obviously it's really repetitive and that's its shtick. Like, I'm not saying that as a, like a, a bad thing, but for me, it just that gets quite tiring, like listening to that and a recording. I think I could deal with it if it was live, but that's got a short shelf life for me. Um, it's more just like showcasing cool bits that somebody's coming up come up with. So, like, yeah, there are things like I listen to it, and I, there's parts that I enjoy about it. There's things that make me smile, and that I've really warmed to. But I I don't necessarily know if I will spend a huge amount more time with it. But I value it for sure, and think it should go in the discography. You know, there's a lot of good points in there actually that I hadn't really brought into focus for myself uh, Vicky kind of like summed them up really nicely there's some good names as well the Latigra one's a good one actually <laughs> you know the willful naivety of Latigra the sort of like Maybe slightly forced naivety of La Tigra mm-hmm. seems to sort of harken back to ESG a wee bit. But I like how it gets that balance of, like, similar to how they're not punk because they're not aggressive. They are about yeah. dance. But it's not dance music, but it's about music to dance to. Well, mm. you can literally, we were talking about DJing earlier on, you can imagine banging an ESG track on before La Tigra. It would be a oh, really, yeah, totally really good, yeah. Yeah. A, good f- a good flow. Uh, they are very evocative in New York City, she's right, and I think that that's not a coincidence, because I think a lot of the New York scene, I mean, this obviously didn't form in a vacuum, but I think it's it's informed the New York scene that has developed afterwards as well, including, again, the sort of slight, for- slightly forced... DIYness of the bands like the Strokes who had an enormous recording budget but yet managed to sound like a bunch of wee guys in the garage albeit deceptively well done mm-hmm. a bunch of wee guys in the garage I think there's something to that as well that goes beyond just the, the actual musical stylings um, Vicky was talking about the, the percussion uh, and the percussiveness of some of the tracks uh, I noticed uh, Renee Scroggins talking about the fact that you know they would they would stick their heads out the window they, they grew up in a part of the South Bronx it was full of Puerto Ricans mm-hmm. and they were surrounded by Puerto Rican music and elements of like Latin beats you can really hear it in the drumming uh, from very early on Definitely. we'll go through the tracks but also you can just get that sort of like shuffle and push that very Latin sort of like accent on a lot of their stuff and I, I think you know I think that's kind of part of what she's articulating there um, and then I mean, it's not something that the three of us where chromosomes can necessarily articulate but the the idea of being able to actually hear young women in the post-punk milieu channeling teenage experiences because we've heard you know we've heard the undertones you know we've heard all of that stuff from a male point of view uh, it's been done to death young men and their opinions and their feelings and their angst and it's not invalid it's a beautiful thing to to watch and experience and it's touching and i'm sure men and women alike can relate to parts of it but it's also really nice to hear young women coming through that filter and at that stage in life 16 and 19 year olds when they started this band and that's that is really fascinating and it's something that is definitely underrepresented um and i guess the last thing i personally took for that was when vicky was sort of like 
reserving judgment on how often should we go back to it. I can see her point because I think this is a band that has informed so much and the music that came off the back of it has been more sophisticated, you know, and, and unavoidably so. And it, it does, it's got more complex melody. And so I think for me, I've grown so used to it that that is probably the stuff I would spend more time with, even in hindsight. You know, it's, we talk sometimes about, you know, if there's a band that we know is objectively a good band, but the influence shit acts, we find it hard to be objective. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's hard to go back to music that is so, I'm going to say the word primitive, but I don't mean it disparagingly. It's so basic, so primitive, so stripped back. It's hard to go back to that when you could maybe just jump forward slightly, something that's a little bit more melodically complex, whilst acknowledging that that more melodically complex band might not have existed without this band. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, I totally agree. I was just going to say I also totally agree. Um, The the thing that really rung for me was that this whole South Bronx vibe, you know, the the sparseness feels dead oppressive almost. You know, I think there's... I think there's like a really fine line to walk between having really sparse music, but but because though it's also in a dense place, you know, mm-hmm. like a mm-hmm. lot of a lot of what they do is because there's so much going on psychopathy wise with the drums and the bass, which we'll talk about in a second. It it feels busy without actually feeling busy. Some of the some of the tracks have that going on in it. Can I throw something in the mix here? And it's an idea that I don't think we've ever articulated on the show, but this episode really helped it sort of coalesce in my in my imagination. You can hear the poverty in the production on this record, right? You can hear the lack of time in the studio that they could afford. You can hear that the lack of sophistication in the arrangements, the lack of like oversight. They, they do not come from a training background. They, this is something that was slammed down with energy on a budget. And you can hear that in some of the best and most pivotal records. You look at like Nirvana's Bleach album and you can hear it through all kinds of great punk records and even some of the early industrial records and metal records. You can hear the poverty in the music. And I think it is, it is that je ne sais quoi of like poverty and credibility, that that intermingling that you get. I noticed that there was a really good article recent, uh, just this month, and, and of all publications, Pitchfork, about why do so many contemporary musicians want to sound like working class heroes? Mm-hmm. And I think you hear in a lot of lo-fi production an attempt to to, to ape sincerity. And this, this just absolutely drips with sincerity. It's It's just, you know, you absolutely hear the bare bones of what they were making this music on. And a lot of people have tried to copy that, I think, as much as anything. You know, trying to get away from just copying the notes and the patterns. They've tried to copy the authenticity of this record. And that is, I think, is informing a lot of our impressions of it. And that the Bronxiness, the New Yorkness, the city, inner city nature of it, it, it's there because it's real and it, it's definitely something that people have tried to then appropriate. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, it's, it's effortless and I mean that mm-hmm. in both senses of the word you know, it's effortless because it, it is born from need it's literally born from a desire, not a need a need to, to do this you know, mm-hmm. to, to have this, this thing that they've spent time creating and putting it out there it's, it's born from that need it's effortless mm-hmm. in that sense the, the the poverty of it as well is also effortless because that was just the reality. Yeah, it's very honest. I mean, I was gonna I was gonna tie that thought up by saying a lot of a lot of artists will try to ape that and make it sound very effortful. Yeah, you know, it's, they'll try and make it not sound 
effortful that new word that mm. we'll definitely attribute to you Mark but <laughs> they, they'll try and make it not sound that way but then put a lot can, of effort into doing that yeah you, <laughs> you get the the uncanny valley effect of like mm. okay this is trying so hard to sound lo-fi yeah, yeah. Totally. this is trying so hard to sound legit that it just sounds even less so um all right shall we swing through the tracks yeah i mean there's not a lot to them so let's no let's no absolutely through. and i think that's kind of a part of the the uniqueness of the record but mm-hmm. so we start off with come away and i mean this is just bass and drums real lazy drum beat a little bit of vocal coming in a <laughs> really weak bass tone which is kind of charming yeah but i mean it's just it's minimal dance music that's all it is and it's like the sung vocals there are, are modest and there's just enough funk there i guess on this one but i mean it's not like a big bravora opener it's like a hey we're in a room playing some instruments it almost seems childish to me yeah. and i think that's really nice because they were i mean some of them are 16 years old and um, it actually also has a little bit of santa gold an artist that we've covered in the show before mm-hmm. um, and I think Santa Gold when she was doing her more indie stuff touched on this quite a bit yeah mm-hmm. that's a really infectious groove that really infectious groove that's what they're so fucking good at doing and making infectious grooves which is beyond people that are fucking four or five times their age <laughs> you know what I mean and they can they, they can do it like like I said effortlessly at such a young age uh, then dance 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 The first song I heard, <laughs> I used to play this quite a lot. It was at like Thursday night in Variety Bar. Um, you can hear like how massively influential this is. It's got a lot more funk to it, but it's still so stripped back. But you can see, like you were talking earlier, that like indie dance crossover of bands like LCD Sound System and Daft Punk. This is just their vibe. This is exactly what they're going for. It's got a great wee vocal hook to like the mm-hmm, sung gang yeah. vocals. I mean, it's a great song. It's like a total. That's very. It's very disco, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, indie that, disco that dance. Yeah, yeah, total indie disco. Oh, this is the one that's closest to that uh, Slits track, the the Grapevine version. Mm. It's got that real open roominess to it that I think really brought that to mind. Um, and I also think the breakdowns in this song are really clever. Like the, you know, they they talked about their band being a James Brown breakdown, but then within their breakdowns, they've got breakdowns as well mm-hmm. that are that are very effective. Well, I was going to I was going to say like I feel so this beat for this is really Motowny feeling. You know, yeah. it kind of it yeah, comes yeah. right back to that. But one of the things I like about this song so much is like they have the conviction to keep the jam going, which is a proper funk thing. Like we heard that in P funk stuff. You know, and James yeah. Brown did that as well. Like you say, Chris, they just keep, they just stick with it, they just stick with that, that groove for as long as they feel as though it's necessary. And you can imagine it going down a total storm in a life setting because of that. Yeah. It's got locked in and it's hypnotic. You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you make no sense. Track number three. It's a slightly sort of more esoteric post punky one. You make no sense. You make no. You make no sense. You make no. You make no sense. I 
think this is has a lot of uh, the track Not Great Men by Gang of Four. Uh-huh. Uh, minus if you if you took the guitar out of the mix of that song, it, it, it's reminiscent of it. Albeit, I really like the bass rises in this tune. It's got a really nice little like bass ascent, on yeah. it. and it's got that dead fun use of the cowbell. Or well, mm-hmm. it's kind of a cowbell sort wood, of wood blocky sort of wood block thing. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. the the yeah. drums kind of feel distorted in places. Like they are, and some of the crashes are in this whole record. Of like they just they just like peak. You can yeah. hear it, it's mm-hmm. like a wash um, And this this is one of the songs that I think I have written here a production that's a bit weird Because it's got that post-punky vibe yeah. It feels as though it's in that meeting point between like A funk and, and a post-punk thing Which feels really organic And I think you can actually hear the thumb and the fingers On the bass as well, which just Is a really <laughs> lovely little really lovely little thing I also, I find like the vocals on this Although throughout the album The vocals are sometimes maybe a bit of an afterthought Or they're like a flourish like on this track like they're really full of personality mm-hmm. um and yeah really like that um parking lot blues track 4 I love this one cuz it's yeah wonky alert but it is mm-hmm. um it's got this ever so offbeat descending bass that just continues the whole way through and then the drums just fuck about around it all it's as minimal as you can get it's the first use of the guitar in the album eh? yeah, 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 yeah it's got a, yeah that, that bass line's a pure punk bass line yeah it's right out of the totally. 70s punk 70, like 70s, 70s punk bass line yeah. and then mm-hmm. they've just got like a sort of funky disco drummer just going at it round about it and yeah it works the South Brox feel thing came for the guitar in this because that was pure eerie and the, the, the bass line's a bit creepy sounding as well and it has that that kind of urban degradation kind of feel to it I think mm-hmm. um, number five Chistel This is the one that Vicky said was her favourite and said you'd like because it sounds like Interpol, Chris. The weird thing is, yeah, I have got written here, this sounds like the first Interpol then. <laughs> there we are. <laughs> she clearly, uh, she's got me pinned, yeah. Um. It also has like a really odd white noise filter that, that yeah. goes through it, um, <clears throat> which I think is, is quite an unusual kind of post-production touch. Uh, this is actually maybe the track on the record that works the least for me because they're try. I don't know that it's just not. They're not quite tight enough to pull it off because it's a bit too indie, maybe or something. I don't know. I, I think I love the way the guitar provides the hook. That they're so yeah. clever at doing that, at bringing in hooks when you, without the vocal sometimes, and obviously they do bring in vocals at, at points as well. I do, uh, yeah, I like, and I guess they're trying stuff with like reverse echo on the guitar and, and things like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I just, it's uh, I don't know. It doesn't grab me like the rest of it does. But uh, then track six about you got some keys in the background. I, I know it all about you. 
Um, yeah, a, a really weird, very very thin synth effect yeah. in it. Like, <laughs> I mean, I, I I don't love this song by any means. I think it's one of the weaker ones, but it's, I, I do like the jauntiness, of it the stompiness of it. It sounds like they're having fun. You know, it's got the cowbell and I, 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 musically doesn't really set my world alight. But uh, it's definitely it's it's upbeat. I kind of you know? I kind of like what it defines though, because like. I think the vocals on it, you mentioned Motown as part of the percussion. I think the vocals are very Motown on this. Like it's a, quite a big Motown, old Motown tune. And then you've basically just got the fall B-side underneath that. <laughs> and that, to yeah. me that works. Yeah. That's a fucking great vibe. Uh, it's all right. Track seven. Yeah, some nice extra percussion on this. Mm-hmm. But the guitar, I think, works a lot better than on Chistel for me. Cheeky guitar skipping about in this one is, is good. As you say, the vibe from the extra percussion is great. I think the, the, the twin vocals in this are really well used as well. Yeah, I really like the backing vocals. That's a, po- that's a proper Motown thing, those vocals. like Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. 100%. Yeah, I love the congas. They're so good. It's just lovely, just a nice touch. <laughs> I love the congas. Yeah, you fucking love the congas, <laughs> mate. <laughs> That's a message tone waiting to happen when it, for Mark, isn't it? Uh, Beep. I love the congas. <laughs> Eight. Um, Moody Spaced Out, which you know re- was released uh, as part of an EP on the earlier, EP. but yeah. man, panned <laughs> percussion on this is really cool. Definitely big sort of New York house vibes. Mm-hmm. Um, this is excellent. Yeah, some sy- synthy squelches, affected vocals. Yeah. I mean, like this could be released on a fashionable dance label right now. I could, mm. you know. I, I, I like that they went to town on this version of it. I prefer it. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, it's, it's it's fun. It's it's a really strong song. See the the sixteenth and the hi hat in this man. That's like that. You're totally right. That's a, that's exactly what I got. Feel like you could release it now. It's that's yeah. a dance thing that's still done to this day. Yeah, you just quantize it a little bit and then you know stick it out on subclub. <laughs> yeah, totally. It, it feels like it could easily be in a black exploitation film. Aye. it's got that eighties <laughs> B movie sci fi feel. Which yeah. I really liked. <laughs> uh, uh, track nine, Tiny Sticks. It's just another tight, sort of fun instrumental one. Yeah, but but throw away this one. Yeah. It's, it's fine. It's cheerful. Again, it keeps the album kind of buoyant, but it doesn't add a lot. No. In terms of memorability. Then track 10, The Beat. That's a big tune. That's a, that's a, a belter. It's a, yeah. it's a belter in their canon as well. Like it's a, When you see their live shows, this is, this is a real favourite. And it's bass and drums and vocals, mm-hmm. you know. 
Nothing else. Hooky as fuck as well. Totally. Very, very hooky song. Uh, mm. And then finishes off with track 11, My Love For You. And I think this is another one where the chorus it could just totally be a Motown chorus. Uh, my love for you baby is like a miracle round mm-hmm. I'm like I just think that's a fucking great and huge melody like what Vicky was saying it's like teenage girl naivety but it's really fun um, got this really simple percussion behind it it's a fucking great tune uh, you know this song really uh, I can hear the gossip you know the band the gossip yeah yeah like, you can hear like the, the seeds of that kind of like movement in this it's a much more accomplished vocal on it um, and I think of all of them this is actually probably aged yeah, as well as anything. Maybe Moody is the only other one that's close to it. Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, overall, um, I guess, taking what Vicky said in terms of she wouldn't necessarily listen repeatedly to this album or or go back to it. And I get that because, yeah, as we talked about, it is very simple and we're maybe more attuned to the music that it has influenced. But, I mean, I would definitely go back to this album for tracks to DJ. You know, it's such a good collection of songs um even if it's not necessarily an album that will hold your attention as a complex music listener um mm-hmm. but i mean overall complex music listener <laughs> that's what i classify myself as <laughs> is, is it you that's complex or is the music complex that's what i'd like why not both on. but yeah i mean kind of maybe i'll put our Hang cards on, on you the were, table but you were shitting on dream theater earlier on uh they're complex music yeah that's true but they have but, absolutely no soul <laughs> oh, but wait a minute. Maybe the fact you like Meshuggah, but you hate Dream Theater, and that hypocrisy makes you also complex. Exactly. So you're a, there you are. You're a com- you're a complex listener Indeed. to complex music. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess I just I love the fact that I mean they were fighting just about every battle. Black women born into poverty, but they created music that wasn't about that. It was just purely mm-hmm. about the music, and they were self-taught. It was just about the fucking joy of dancing, basically. There is a really fascinating dynamic, which I don't think we are, inverted commas, qualified to delve into, of this group of young, impoverished black women being exploited by a lot of black musical culture. Mm-hmm. I was going to say followed. that. I was going to say that. That's like, a, v- yeah. they, that's still a very that interesting dynamic, yeah. They're still fighting that battle, like you said there, Dave. Like, they're still fighting to this day because because of what, what cropped up afterwards. Yeah. You would love to, you'd you as a dance producer you'd love to you'd love to have written even half the beats in this record for any of your songs. Yeah, totally. You know? And I just love the fact that this record isn't perfect. The playing isn't that sharp. There's not a whole load of like <laughs> that's, that's uh, definitely yeah. <laughs> very plate. But it's raw. It's like it is unique. It's like very of its moment. It's personal and it's fuck it's really fun. Uh they've been going for 40 years. Their last album was pretty good, actually, surprisingly. Oh, definitely. I I can see myself giving the last record a lot more listens than this. Yeah. No disrespect to this, but I think there's stuff on the last record that will just totally kill on a dance floor. Aye, totally. And mm. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's as unsung as you're going to get. They've never made any money and they've been hu- hugely influential, so... Aye. I mean, this is this is a fucking genius choice. I mean, I, I honestly think this is one of the most on the nose in a good way selections we've we've had. So it's a total no brainer for me. It's definitely in. Yeah, totally. It has to go in. I think it's as it unsung and by every measure. Great. Well, 
Thanks. <laughs> done. <laughs> Job done. Off we go. Don't get fucking used to it, right? <laughs> well, I guess we've got to now connect this to our Nexus. This is the first time we're seeing Nexus tonight. Will it be the last? What do they have in store this for us? Not good for- Why am I here? You're in the Nexus. This is the Nexus. For you. This is what you want. Nexus time! Which is... GG Allen. It's it's all fucking letters, isn't it? ESG. ESGG Allen. Now, I've said you can't use Wigfield because obviously GG Allen was part of my Nexus about three or four weeks ago. When it was discovered that an actually jaw dropping nexus, yeah, <laughs> that Gigi Allen in Saturday Night by Wigfield yep. in the music video for that she holds a, a photo of Gigi Allen, um, which is wild, which is mad. wild, and yeah, and I've checked it since as well. I watched the video and and amazed my friends, <laughs> cur- courtesy of Dave. In fact. <laughs> um, um, right, Dave, this is yours. Yeah, it's so, me to uh, go. So take the lead. There's probably quicker ways to get here, but this, this one isn't too long. Um, Tony Wilson from Factory Records uh, signed the band for their EPs uh, in 1980. Tony Wilson and Factory Records were sort of portrayed in the biographical comedy drama movie 24-Hour Party People, starring Steve Coogan uh, as Tony Wilson. Uh, Steve Coogan... I mean, I think he's most famous for Alan Partridge, the greatest comedy creation of our time. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, Alan Partridge was created as part of uh, the On The Hour radio show with Chris Morris and uh, Armando Anucci and some other writers, including uh, Leon Herring and the not bitter at all uh, <laughs> Richard Herring quite often <laughs> goes on about how he created Alan Partridge Stuart Lee doesn't mention it so much, but Stuart Lee, stand-up comedian, uh, he nearly gave up stand-up comedy in the early 2000s when he co-directed and co-wrote Jerry Springer, the opera, uh, and then they got like a huge backlash from Christian groups and right-wing groups and stuff like that. Uh, Jerry Springer, the opera, was a financial disaster because of all that, the amount of uh, financial... Uh, court battles that they had to do but it was a critical critical success and it was of course based on uh, Jerry Springer uh, or the Jerry Springer show a TV show and talk show that uh, Gigi Allen actually appeared on in about 1994 I think it was Uh, what a rammy and it was uh, it was Car Crash TV Uh, shall we turn it over to Vicky she's got a nexus I believe yeah go for it okay here we go ESG's first EP was recorded by Tony Wilson of Factory Records. Factory Records, which spawned loads of famous bands from Manchester, like, you know, Joy Division, New Order. Oh, they're, they're basically the same band, but you, you, get, you get the point. In the film 24 Hour Party People, the character of Tony Wilson, the film was all about 
the fact factory records and the Hacienda nightclub and all of that. And the character of Tony Wilson was played by Steve Coogan. Steve Coogan's obviously most well known for playing Alan Partridge, <laughs> a kind of Richard Madeley esque, uh, bumbling middle aged TV presenter. About six years ago, in 2015, 3,291 people signed a petition to have Alan Partridge headline Glastonbury in a reasonably priced car. Somebody who was a massive supporter of Glastonbury for many years was former Clash frontman Joe Strummer. Joe Strummer, before he was in the Clash, went to Central College of Art, is that what it's called? Central College of Art or something? I, it's basically went to the Central School for Art and eventually that merged with St Martin's College and it's now Central St Martin's, right? Fuck's sake. Anyway, other famous alumni of Central St Martin's include a pair of performance artists called Gilbert and George. If you've never seen Gilbert and George, they look like the Morecambe and Wise of the performance art world. They're incredibly conservative, older guys that, you know, wear kind of tan-coloured suits and their glasses and they're balding. And, and they're very conservative with a, with a capital C as well. Anyway, they're, they're kind of performance and graphic artists, they have been used to incorporate images of faecal matter into their <laughs> you know where I'm going with this into their art, they've done a full exhibition about jobbies and well I think we all know that Gigi Allen has been well documented that he liked to munch on jobbies on stage he was a uh, what, what's the word for it? Corp Profiti, God, corprofici refers to many kinds of feces eating. Yes, that's what I'm talking about. Not, not that's what I'm talking about. As if I'm down with that. Just that's what I mean. So that that's uh, that's my next. <laughs> I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure that actually counts. To be honest, <laughs> I mean, right. I first mean, of all, I mean, she's obviously on the same wavelength as here. But then, as as me, like, so did we have five links the same until we got to Alan Partridge? Uh, but secondly, you can't just use poo as a link. <laughs> <laughs> you can't just use, they both like jobbies. That's not a, that's not a Nexus link. <laughs> All right, well, me. we'll let it off. Mark, you or me? You go next, Chris. You've probably got Nazis in yours. I... Do not have Nazis oh. in mind. I have the exact opposite of Nazis in mind. Let's cancel the podcast um, then. Dream Theater. So, uh, uh, <laughs> ESG uh, supported the band Pill, P-I-L, uh, featuring John Lydon. He's uh, a Nazi. BMP. Calif- <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's not a Nazi. He's, he's a fucking knobend is what he is. Right? <laughs> they supported Pill uh, at, uh, was it Hacienda? Oh, in fact, no, it was in California. It was three days after Renee Scroggins had given birth. Martin Atkins, the the drummer, uh, performed as part of Pill in between 1979 and 1980. Uh, he also played in Killing Joke, Pigface, Ministry, Nine Inch Nails. Uh, Nine Inch Nails uh, did the song Dead Souls for the Crow uh, soundtrack. Uh, it's a Joy Division cover, actually. However, also for the Crow 
was released The Crow original motion picture score Which was composed and performed largely by a man called Graham Revell uh, Now Graham Revell, fucking hell This guy has done so much stuff So some of the films that Graham Revell has scored Include People Under the Stairs, Basketball Diaries, Tank Girl, Street Fighter Bonafide classic Yeah, it's a classic uh, Strange Days, The Craft, Dusk Till Dawn, Oof. Spawn, Oof. Idle Hands, Oof. Pitch Black, Oof. Blow, Oof. Open Water, Oof. Sin City, <laughs> Planet Oof. Terror, Holy Pineapple shit. Express, and even the video game Call of Duty and Call Jesus of Duty 2. Jesus Christ. So Graham Revell has been really fucking busy, but Graham Revell was also busy in the late 70s and 80s as part of an Australian industrial band uh, called SPK. I believe in that band he went under the names <laughs> EMS-AKS and also Oblivion. So, uh, you know, subtle. Uh, SPK were a bit of a revelation to me. Like The first couple of albums are pretty dense, the first one especially. The third one, they sort of did a thing that they described as like industrial music mixed with Blondie, which is pretty interesting. Um, SPK stands for, excuse me, ahead of time here, the Socialistische... Patient Collective, which obviously translates as the Socialist Patients Collective, right? Uh, now, Neil Hill and Graham Revell from SBK were working in a psychiatric hospital when they met, and uh, what the Socialist Patients Collective advocated... It's, it's kind of complicated, but it's fascinating, right? The SBK was founded in 1970 in the, the University of Heidelberg by uh, Wolfgang Huber uh, and later became known as the Patient's Front. Um, they published uh, a book or a, a sort of like manifesto called uh, Turn Illness Into a Weapon, uh, the foreword of which, by the way, was written by Jean-Paul Sartre. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. Um, and in that manifesto, they basically argued that illness, illness generally, is caused by the capitalist system, <laughs> right? Mm, that's, and the, uh, that's... Yeah. Feed, and, and feed the, that directly into my veins. Doctor, <laughs> doctors are the ultimate ruling class of capitalists and are guilty of poisoning the entire human race. <laughs> okay, I mean, this is obviously the fucking the left unleashed in the same way as fucking QAnon on the right, right? But... Um, uh, the sick to them were a potential revolutionary class uh, and also one of the advantages which I think is quite convenient of uh, that whole school of thought was that the middle class could join in guilt free because illness also afflict, uh, afflicted the, the middle class and therefore they felt like they weren't just financially oppressed they were oppressed in health and therefore had a viable grievance um, they I mean, they, they conducted political therapy and reframing illness as a product of capitalism that could also disrupt capitalism. So, you know, if you were ill, you were absent from work and it disrupted the system. So illness was like the antidote to the system that caused it. I've actually heard that um, before. That's, that's weird. I mean, it's it's fucking gibberish, but it's also dead <laughs> fascinating. Um, and ultimately, they were broken up after uh, the Bader-Meinhof shooting, which is a totally oh. separate incident. But they were sort of like rolled into the raids that, that, that 
and the police brutality that followed that incident in Germany. Um, so yeah, it was it was disbanded largely. But yeah, I mean, it's still there to be read about, and it is really fascinating as an example of when left wing beliefs just go fucking completely <laughs> just just jump right the fuck over when the, the shark. when the horseshoe uh, meets itself. <laughs> uh, anyway. Graham Revell, aside from all those films that we mentioned earlier on, also did music for uh, Vim Vendor's 1981 film Until the End of the World. That film Until the End of the World featured uh, the song Summer Kisses, Winter Tears by Mr Elvis Presley. It wasn't actually in the soundtrack, uh, but it was in the film. Uh, Elvis Presley was the subject of a very flattering portrait by a Mr John Wayne Gacy. Uh, the famous clown killer John Wayne Gacy was a budding artist and by the way his landscapes are actually surprisingly fucking good but his portraits are fucking demented <laughs> um, uh, and other subjects include Hitler Skeletor the Seven Dwarfs <laughs> and Jesus Christ what uh, a boy band now, that would make now see you're going I, 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 I could have said at this point that Jesus Christ is Gigi Allen's real name yeah Mm-hmm. No joke. Yeah. But that's actually not my life. Oh, all right. What? Because Elvis Presley was painted by John Wayne Gacy, and the film hated Gigi Allen and the Murder Junkies, the movie. The poster of that film was designed by John Wayne Gacy. Oh, who was, fuck. Who was pals with Gigi Allen. Of course. Uh, and, and the director uh, sold the poster at $15 a copy and made more than 12 grand, which basically funded the documentary film. And that director was Todd Phillips, who directed The Hangover. No way. That's <laughs> fucking mental. Love it. That was his, it was his first ever movie. That's, That's great. Well done. Well, thanks for that. Well, I've actually found a, a suspiciously short route, which, which I decided to go down because it's kind of interesting. Um, Fisher Mark. Also that too. Um, <laughs> you know me too well. So... As we discussed earlier on, ESG released this album and their first EPs on 99 Records. The second of a release from 99 Records was a song called Too Many Creeps by Bush Tetris. Um, and they broke up and reformed a bunch of times. And in 2007-2012, they released two albums on Roar Records, which also released a Gigi Allen compilation in 1987. Oh, that is that's great. A, that's a proper one. That's the kind of the guy in the music store. Yeah, you? yeah. Hated in the Nation, that compilation was called. So, Lovely. Yeah. And he was. He was, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Cool. Dave, smashing choice this week, man. Smashing choice. Thanks Hats off to you, man. Um, and I believe next week is mine. Mm-hmm. Now, I have been wrestling with this for days now because I was torn between two. And there are two that I can make a good case for. They're both evoke a bit of a reaction I think uh, I've decided to go for the latter and it's going to keep us in the very early 80s okay. uh, 83 to be specific and it's the album The Crossing by Big Country <laughs> Whoa. okay okay hi boy uh, I want to stipulate it is the original release because the re-releases are far too fucking long even though the bonus stuff is actually really pretty good on them, it, it takes it way, way, way over the hour mark. We're not doing that. It's the original release of The Crossing, uh, and I am looking forward to it because there's a lot of Scottishness to come up in this next episode. Uh, so if you are a follower of the podcast, 
good fucking luck trying to understand our next episode because <laughs> I'm personally going to be broadening my fucking accent <laughs> as fucking far as I can in honour of Stuart Adamson. I'll get Kevin Bridges on the phone. I actually have this record on vinyl. Chaz a shop so purchase, so I'll go and stick it on. Same here. If you live in Scotland, you can pick this masterpiece up for one ninety nine. the way I did. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I, I, I'm comfortable with this choice. The other one... I will spring in you at a later date and you'll be appalled. But this is this this needs to happen. And it needs to happen because what other podcast is going to be able to platform this album as well as us? That's true. Aye, aye, fucking right. Aye. Cracking class. <laughs> Alright. Well, that's great. Alright. Eh? Alright, Neebs. Alright. Fucking cat- catch his later. Catch his eh? later. See us on the other side, like I. You know what I bite them all, lads. Alright. Cheers. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.